pondering what it means to be lost, not geographically, but on a much deeper level. Here's Pastor Ed. Someone is lost when they say, I wish I'd never been born. Someone is lost when they say, what's the use? Lost is helplessness. Lost is purposelessness. The real poor in this world are not those without money, but those without a reason, without a purpose, an aim, a goal for their life. It's purposelessness that really gnaws at people. But there is a purpose for your life. Zion, now filled with hands, and in this place gotta dwell with man. Sick be healed and the crippled stand singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son. Selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love, and harmony. I said, let this world know me by your love. Have you discovered your purpose in life? God has one for you, and we'll learn about it today on Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. We're very glad to have you along with us. Last time we were considering the Christian virtues described for us in Titus chapter 3. Submission, obedience, good works, not speaking evil of others, being peaceable, and being gentle. What a difference it makes in our life and in the lives of those around us. We'll start off today's study with the seventh virtue, humility. And it's found in chapter 3, verse 2. Showing all humility to all men, every consideration, another translation says. It, it actually is the word translated meekness, in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are the meek. Well, the word pralatus in the Greek language, it means meek, not weak. It means power under control. In fact, it was used to describe a stallion that had been trained, a horse that was powerful, but was meek because he would obey everything the rider asked him to do. It was power under control. So gentlemen, when you think meek sounds wimpy, it's just the opposite. It means that you're confident enough in who you are, you don't have to argue. You see, a really confident person doesn't have to win the argument, doesn't have to lose $10 to prove that he's right. Duh, meekness in daily practice. Humility is hard to find in this world. It's hard to find great examples. My favorite example is of the American educator, African-American educator, Booker T. Washington. Dr. Washington was appointed president of the Tuscany Institute in Alabama. And he told a story that I think is a perfect picture of humility. He was walking through a very wealthy part of town and a wealthy white woman approached him and asked if he would like to make some money. Not knowing who he was, she said, I, I need someone to chop some wood for me, and I'll pay you for it. And he's so humble, he said, you know what, I, I, that would be fine, I'll do that, where is it? So he chopped wood for a while, took it in the house and laid it down next to the fireplace, and the woman paid him, and he folded the money and put it in his wallet and, and walked out. But the woman's daughter recognized him, she said, Mom, you didn't hire Dr. Washington to cut wood, did you? She said, who? He's the new president of the university right down the street. She was so embarrassed, she went the next morning to his office and apologized profusely. But he, gracious, 
humble as he was, said to her, oh, it's perfectly all right, ma'am. Occasionally I enjoy a little manual exercise. Besides, it's always a delight to do something for a friend. And he made a friend of the woman. And she asked about the work that was going on, and she convinced some of her friends, and they became the main financial source for scholarships to Tuscany University. That's a humble man, a godly man, but also moved others towards Jesus. That's who you are, now who you were. It gets a little more insulting here, verse 3. For we ourselves, all of us, Paul includes himself, Titus too, and you, and that person sitting next to you, for we ourselves were also once, fill in the blank, foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasure, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Why is he doing this? Because Christians turn into Pharisees if they don't remember where they came from. Particularly after you've been walking with the Lord for a while, you start getting a little cocky about how awesome you are <laughs> because the Holy Spirit has changed you from the inside out and you're doing things you're supposed to and you go, ah, oh, look at me. No, no, look at Jesus. You were once these things. Number one, foolish. It doesn't mean without intelligence. It means without understanding because we thought we could live without God and be happy because we thought that we could sin without paying a price, because we thought that things would satisfy. So we were all foolish and enemies of God. Secondly, we were disobedient towards most authority, but certainly towards the authority of God. We didn't even want to wreck it. I'll speak for myself, not you, because I'm sure you were all compliant people. God said, you shall not lie. And we did. He said, thou shalt not covet, and we have. I want to ask you how you're doing on that one this week. God said, thou shalt not take my name in vain. And every time, years later, after I hit my finger with a hammer, amazing things go across my mind. <laughs> I can't believe that's still in there. Transgression. It's not sin, just sin. Sin means you tried to hit the mark and you missed. But this is transgression, willful disobedience. I knew these things, you knew these things, and you were still disobedient. Thirdly, deceived. The Greek word plano or planeno is the, where we get our word planet from because the Greeks thought that the planets were random. They wandered in their path across the sky because, you know, the different seasons of the year display different positions for the various planets. So to be a planet was to wander, to be led astray, to be deceiving ourselves. We are bent in our mind, in our will, in our actions. The major thing we said we wanted was freedom. We want to be free to do anything we wanted. <laughs> But in fact, it's self-deception. Ephesians 4, 17, This I say, therefore, and testify of the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the pagans do in the futility of their mind. Their minds are futile. 
2 Timothy 2.13, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived themselves. We're self-deceived when we're walking in our own wisdom. You know, others have prejudices, but we have convictions. <laughs> others, of course, are conceited, but we have great self-respect. When you spend time on your personal appearance, it's vanity, but when I spend time on mine, it's enhancing my God-given assets. <laughs> Too close to home, wasn't it? <laughs> in you, it's touchiness, but in me, it's sensitivity. I'm a sensitive guy. In you, it's worry, but in me, it's concern. I really am concerned, really. Self-deception is a dangerous place to live for long periods of time. A physical illustration of it, his name was Jim Fick. Some of you remember him. He wrote a bestseller, The Complete Book of Running. He ran 80 miles a week. Guy was a machine. He looked like he was in tip-top shape, and every time he ran, he tended to win in endurance races. It didn't seem possible that at 52 years old he could have had a massive coronary on a Vermont road and wasn't found for hours later. It did an autopsy and his wife said she was sure that her husband had no idea that he had a congenital heart problem, something that he had inherited from his own father. They did a pathological report on him and it showed it and, you know, an autopsy. And she was uh, struggling because she said, you know, my husband didn't believe in doctors. He never went to a doctor. He was self-deceived. The pathologist wrote in his report that his heart, Fick's heart, was so strong he may not have had the telltale chest pains or shortness of breath that usually signals a coming infarction because he was so strong. His heart was so powerful it just pumped up and blew out the back of his heart. Self-deception can be dangerous physically, but the worst kind is spiritual. Serving various lusts and pleasures, enslaved to passions and desires, another translation says. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the demands of absolute liberty, wanting to be absolutely free, brings people to the depths of slavery more and more caught up in your lusts. So, Pleasures becoming evil when they enslave us. They may not have been wrong of themselves. Sexual pleasure is a beautiful gift that God gives within the constraints of marriage. Outside of it, it destroys people. An important and timely word from Pastor Ed Ray here on Growing Grace concerning the use of our freedom so that we remain free now to continue our look at Titus chapter 3 at verse 5, here again is Pastor Ed. Living in malice and envy, literally in, the, in evil and envy days, days full of evilness. The grass always looks greener on the other side and we get caught up. It's strange to me to see married couples who are jealous of each other's successes instead of us supporting our spouse and encourage them along the road of life, we sometimes go the opposite. Samuel Beckett, some of you know the Irish novelist, a very gifted writer and playwright. But his wife, Susan, was also a writer, and she was not getting the accolades he was because he was brilliant, and she wasn't. 
but she still continued to write, but got more and more bitter because her husband was getting all these awards and things. And, and it came to a head when she answered the phone one day and she quietly spoke to the person the other end, asked some questions, and then finally thanked them and hung up. <laughs> and her first words when she got off the phone was, this is a catastrophe. And he said, what? She says, it's terrible. It's the worst thing that could happen. He said, what happened? She said, you just won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> now, that's jealousy taking to the extreme. Paul says, living in malice and envy and jealousy is what we used to be. Hateful and hating one another. This is uh, to be repulsive and odious in our lives, that we become hateful and others see it and they hate being around us, and we find ourselves isolated more and more, less friends, less people want to spend any time with us. Now, we got through the tough part. Now, here's how we were saved. That's who we are and who we used to be, and now how you were saved. But when the kindness of, and the love of God, our Savior, towards man appeared, appeared, we were blind, we saw that. But God was kindness and love incarnate. He knew we were blind, so he came in such a way we couldn't miss it. God came to earth and walked around and displayed it. He saw our bankrupt, destitute, indigent condition, and he reached out to us. Kindness, the Greek word is krestotes, and it means good. It's translated good and kindness, and God is thinking grace all the time. That's what this word means. Kindness is God's mental attitude towards you, towards humanity, towards all of us but to you specifically. It can be seen in God's graceful attitude towards you. Why are you putting grace with it? Because God does. Ephesians 2.7, listen. Then in the ages to come, God might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness. Christiotis, that same word. Show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Jesus Christ. Some people misunderstand and despise God's goodness, his kindness towards us. Romans 4, 4. Do you despise the riches of his goodness, krestotosis, the same Greek word, and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the kindness of God leads us to repentance? God's kindness, his goodness towards me is to remind me, embarrass me in my sin and repentant. Say, Lord, forgive me, I'm an idiot. Because God is good and he's always anxious to give good things to you and I. That's his explanation. God's love towards man, as it says here, is philanthropic. Anthropic principle is humanity. Phila, phileia, is the love. So this is the love of mankind. God loves humanity. That's what this says. God loves us in his infinite divine love, much broader than ours, for all people, because his character is perfect. That's what John 15, 13 says. Greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for a friend. Are you listening? You are God's friend. God laid down his life for you. Well, I don't even know him, Pastor. Oh, he knows you. <laughs> and he considers you a friend. Hmm. Last verse. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, According to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. 
not on the basis of deeds which we have done, the New American Standard says. Salvation can never be established in your life or mine through good deeds. If we could in any way work to accomplish our own salvation, then the appearance of Jesus Christ on this scene was an act of futility. It was unnecessary. All we would have had to do is do the right things, do enough good things, and then we could go to heaven. But Ephesians 2.8 is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourself so that none of us can boast. Philippians 3.9. And be found in Jesus, not because of having our own righteousness derived from the law, but because of having the righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness, based on the faithfulness of Christ. Mark Twain said the same thing this way. He said, if heaven would go by favor, if it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would get in. <laughs> Dogs are faithful, right? God makes us fit for his kingdom, not we ourselves. You cannot make yourself fit. You cannot do enough things to earn your heaven. And that includes religious things. Let me see how many people I can offend here. That would include things like penance, water baptism, the Eucharist, self-denial, the observance of religious days or feasts, good works done for others. None of these things earn us salvation. It's because of his mercy. Mercy. Elios, the Greek, is a great word. Here's the technical definition. The self-motivated, self-moved, spontaneous, loving kindness of God, which causes him to deal in compassion and tender affection with the miserable and distressed, the miserable and distressed would be you and I. Mercy is what God gives. His mercy is new every morning. You remember the story of the, the woman who came to Napoleon, whose son had committed multiple crimes and he was facing capital punishment. And she came to Napoleon Bonaparte and asked for a pardon for her son. She said she needed mercy. And Bonaparte said, quote, justice demands that he be punished. And she said, I didn't ask for justice. I asked for mercy for my son. She understood the difference in the word. Mercy is not deserved. It's a gift that's given by a person. The clearest lesson of God's mercy is in the story of the prodigal son. You know it. You remember the son asked for his inheritance, went to Las Vegas, blew it all, was working in a pig pen, and then he said, you know, I can go back home. So when he came... His father saw him and said, while he was far off, that was the eyes of mercy. <laughs> and then he ran to him. Those are the legs of mercy. The father runs to the son, the sinner. And he put his arms around his neck and he wept over the arms of mercy. He says he kissed him. Those were the kisses of mercy. And the tears flowed down on the son's back. Those were the tears of mercy. And he gave him a robe and a ring the gifts of mercy that you and I have received because this is who our Father is. He saved us. Great word, sodo, S-O-Z-O, saved. It's almost impossible to mess it up. <laughs> it can't be manipulated. It's one of God's favorite words. 
He said, unto you a Savior, a Sozo, is born. He said, I am come to seek and to save that which is lost. He is doing it. What does it mean to be saved? Well, yeah, sometimes it helps to look at the opposite of word to understand what it means. If you want to understand dark, you look at the word light. You want to understand sickness, illness, you look at the word health. Well, what does lost mean? Because that's the opposite of saved. Well, lost means to be helpless, to be impotent, no power. Someone is lost when they say, I, I wish I'd never been born. Someone is lost when they say, what's the use? A young lady said to me just the other day, life is a joke and it's not even funny. Lost is helplessness. Lost is purposelessness. The real poor in this world are not those without money, but those without a reason, without a purpose, an aim, a goal for their life. It's purposelessness that really gnaws at people but there is a purpose for your life. God has a very specific purpose for your life. He has a goal for you. He's trying to get you there. He's working to move people and things to arrange your life so that you get into the right pathway. We are not an evolutionary lucky break. <laughs> we are not the end product of eons of accidental but fortuitous circumstances. No, you are the result of God knitting you together in your mother's womb and numbering your days, as he said in Psalm 139, and then arranging people and places, things around you so that you could find the path. You are going somewhere when you surrender to him. You are washed by regeneration. You are renewed by the Holy Spirit. So, I read this week about a man who had converted to Hinduism. The article had this title, Conversion to Hindu Faith is Tortuous. A West German businessman has completed his conversion to the Hindu faith by piercing himself through the cheeks with a one-quarter-inch thick, four-foot-long steel rod and pulling a chariot for two miles by ropes attached to his back and chest by steel hooks. Others with him walked through 20-foot-long pits of fire, put on shoes with soles made of nails point up, and hang in the air spread eagle from hooks embedded in their mags. No, 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 no. It's by his mercy we are saved. Not long ago, a young woman saw a newspaper article in Northern California, we'll close with this, was driving fast up the I-5 corridor. And they caught her with one of those airplanes, and the CHP pulled her over, and she was clocked at more than 85 miles an hour. So she was given a ticket. A few days later, she went before a judge. And the judge, without even looking up, said, guilty or not guilty? And she said, guilty. And he said, gavel down, $400 fine. Then he did something strange. The paper said he stood up, took off his justice robe, laid it, on the chair, walked around and stood beside the young lady, took out his own wallet, took out four $100 bills, counted it out and gave it to the bailiff. You see, the young lady was this man's daughter and he was a just judge, so he levied the right fine, but then paid it himself.
great story Pastor Ed Ray concludes with on today's Grow in Grace, illustrating what God, our judge, and thankfully our Savior, has done for you. All of this is part of our ongoing study in Titus. Did you miss a portion of the message, or was there a part you wanted to hear again? Just go online to thepackinghouse.org for a replay. We archive our programs there for you so you can listen anytime you'd like. That's thepackinghouse.org, or listen to us on Apple Podcasts. One more option is to call and ask for a CD copy at 844-77-GRACE. That's 844-77-GRACE. Grow in Grace is made possible through the generosity of our listeners, and we're thankful for each and every gift that comes our way. If you've been blessed by the teaching you've received through this radio program and would like to support what we're doing in this new year, please give us a call at 844-77-GRACE. And as a way of saying thank you, we'll send you Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. This book brings together what Lewis saw as the fundamental truths of Christianity. And in it, he sets out to defend the beliefs that believers through the ages hold in common. And I know you'll be encouraged by what he has to say. So again, you can ask for your copy of Mere Christianity when you give today. Give us a call, 844-77-GRACE. This program is brought to you by the Packinghouse Christian Fellowship and online at packinghouse.org. Son, selfless sacrifice for everyone.